Hello everyone and welcome to Secondhand Stories, where we invite you to slow down and listen up. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Here we are back for episode two and we've got a couple great stories for you today. First, I just want to thank everyone who listened to the first episode. As of this recording, we've had 99 listens on our debut, which we're just thrilled about. Keep slowing down and listening up with us. Tell your friends, and please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. It'll really help us out. And don't forget to keep writing. We've been getting some really great submissions so far, especially from our listings on Duotrope and New Pages. So thanks to them for helping us out. And be sure to check out our guidelines on secondhandpodcast.com. In the event you missed our debut episode and don't know anything about us, Really, all you need to know is that on this show, you're going to hear some great short stories submitted to us by writers from all over the place. Our goal is to encourage people to start writing and to give people a chance to hear fiction in an audio format. Okay, so our first story today, The Pink and White Terraces of New Zealand, comes to us from 63-year-old Kathy Stevenson. Her essays and short stories have appeared in a wide array of magazines, newspapers, and literary journals including the New York Times, Philadelphia Inquirer, Chicago Tribune, The Writer, Red Rock Review, Clapboard House, and many other publications. She has a recent MFA from Benningham College and lives just north of Chicago. Kathy Stevenson's The Pink and White Terraces of New Zealand Of the months at sea, the less said, the better although the journey itself certainly must be mentioned. I set out for my adopted country a bride and returned a widow, a change of status I now think of as an improvement. I was not altogether ignorant of a bride's responsibilities and duties toward her husband. I had no mother myself, but in the convent there were young women my own age, and also maids and such who came in and who talked a great deal more than you might think about the relations between men and women. When I was a certain age, an acquaintance of a distant relative wrote to the sisters asking if I might be suitable for a match. I had not known of any relatives until then, and apparently they wished to remain anonymous because I was never given their name or their whereabouts. But that hardly seemed important, as the background credentials of Mr. Tucker were analyzed and it was deemed that I could do worse. I was 16 and strong and healthy and couldn't remain a ward much longer. Exactly six weeks I was on my way to New Zealand. The year was 1885. There were two reasons given for our journey to such a faraway land, though it hardly mattered to me. The first was that my husband was associated with a trade society that wished to develop farming interest in this mysterious and fertile land. He was to stay there for a minimum of two years, traveling to the larger towns and making connections with local landowners. My wifely presence would gain him access to more social occasions and contacts, thus my value. The second reason was personal. I did not know it at the time, but my husband, Mr. Tucker, was of a weak constitution, the weakness centering in his throat and lungs, and he hoped that the thermal springs of the North Island would offer him some relief. Let me just say that in the beginning I wished no ill upon my husband even after those times on the ship when I was forced to stay in darkness in our tiny quarters to nurse a blackened eye or bruised cheekbone. Mostly, I was able to conceal the marks he made on me with scarves or a hooded cloak. 
There was always a wind, and we covered ourselves well for protection. By the time we landed in Wellington, I had better learned some of my husband's ways, and it seemed that away from the ship's cramped quarters, he was less likely to find fault with me. Around other people, he was convivial and relaxed, almost languid in his physical demeanor. He reminded me of the sharks we sometimes saw in clear waters, circling about lazily and playfully. You wouldn't sense you were in danger until they were on you. It was only my unwavering faith that evil ways will meet an evil end that enabled me to put one foot in front of the other. This was all I could trust in. I certainly didn't know another woman well enough to confide in, and many of the men we met were more than a little rough and unused to the company of a woman. My husband spent a certain amount of time doing business, so I had long, uninterrupted days to walk about and explore my new home. I found that I was eager to know everything. It was my first experience feeling such largesse from a place, and it was exhilarating. New Zealand was full of strange natural wonders, nothing at all like we had in England. I remember the first time I saw a wild parrot, which I later found was called a kia, swooped down on a sheep, repeatedly puncturing the wool on the sheep's back with its curved beak. I was told that it did so to get at the sheep's kidney fat. It was one of many natural oddities that plagued ranchers, and one of the most fearsome sights I have ever witnessed. There were also wild boars, whose hides were so tough bullets bounced right off, and the foliage where I took my walks was like something in a fairy tale gone mad. Breathtaking in its beauty, yet sinister in the way it pushed upward and outward, overtaking everything in its path. We had been in New Zealand about three months when my husband came home and told me to pack some things for a one-week journey. I had heard about the pink and white terraces and was very excited to see them for myself. Some call them the eighth wonder of the world. Of course, we were not going there to sightsee, as most visitors at that time did. Rather, my husband had heard about the particular healing properties of the hot springs and natural therapeutic waters adjacent to the terraces. We left from Ohinamudi traveling 24 miles by horseback through mountains to the missionary station at Tiiweorua. There we paid the sum of four pounds to a Maori chief who gave us a choice of two guides. It was rumored that these Maori guides were famous rivals, but were equally competent. It turned out that the guide who had been recommended to us, Sophia, was hired out by another party, so we came to be led by Kate. Mr. Tucker and I were also accompanied by two scientists, Mr. Hathaway and Mr. Malcolm. Mr. Hathaway was studying the botany of the area, and Mr. Malcolm was observing the geological formations. After hiring our guide from the head of her village, we learned that she was deaf. At first I was disappointed, although, when I thought about it, I suppose it didn't really matter, since I only spoke a few words of the Maori language. At any rate, Mr. Hathaway and Mr. Malcolm more than made up for any silences on our guide's part. They are naturally inclined to share any discoveries and knowledge they had of that strange land. So many sights from that one small journey that I will never forget. First of all, our guide, Kate, could be classified a natural wonder herself. She was as tall and muscular as the largest man in our party, and, as Mr. Hathaway confided, a half-caste, born to a Maori mother and a Scotsman. Her deafness made her quiet, but she was never still. Her individual features were unattractive in the particular, yet I found her to be compelling to look upon. 
She was typically Maori, with a high forehead and oval face, and with her upper lip outlined in dark blue tattoo, but she had an unruly bush of red hair that sprang from her head like it was on fire. Mr. Hathaway relayed to us a remarkable rumor that Kate had had eight husbands, all of whom, as he explained it, had died away somehow. Our first night after leaving Te Wairoa, we camped by the banks of a lake that was a perfect oval of the most brilliant sapphire blue. My husband was irritable because his cough was bothering him terribly. Each cough came from so deep inside him that I thought his internal organs must suffer with each new attack. I stayed out of his way as much as was possible in the close quarters of our tent. Around the campfire that evening, Mr. Malcolm told us stories of the Sapphire Lake and also of the terraces, which we would see the next day. My husband wanted to know why we couldn't just row directly across the brilliant blue lake instead of walking all the way around it. We would be there by now, I'd say, instead of sleeping in this damp air an extra night. He sounded petulant and annoyed, a tone I recognized well. Mr. Malcolm puffed heartily on his pipe, and the smell of his tobacco smoke mingled with that of the campfire. It is said that no boat can float on the surface of this lake, and that it harbors no living thing, except for a dragon. The Maori won't sail on it. At this, my husband laughed loudly, setting off a new round of coughing. He discharged a great deal of phlegm into his handkerchief, which he then handed to me to take care of. Even today, I cannot say precisely why I chose that moment to stage my small act of rebellion. I gingerly took my husband's handkerchief from him, and instead of tucking it into my pocket to be washed later, I tossed it into the fire. As I watched it burn, he struck me sharply across the face with the back of his hand, not even looking at me. I knew his knobbly middle knuckle would swell my lower lip, and so it did. The other two men were so astonished it appeared they were unable to speak. I looked over the heads of Mr. Malcolm and Mr. Hathaway, wishing myself invisible, and found myself staring into the hard eyes of Kate. Even crouched on a fallen tree trunk in the dark night behind the two men, I could make out her fiery hair and wide blue eyes. I looked down in shame, and as I excused myself, I looked back up and the eyes were gone. Only a cloud of fireflies remained. The next day, we walked through a forest of ferns and clumps of trees with glossy leaves that intertwined to form a dense canopy. Some of the ferns had fronds as delicate as fine Irish lace, while others had trunks as thick as a man's waist. I worked at my lower lip and kept to myself as much as possible. It wasn't difficult to do, as everyone was much taken by the sights. Occasional bursts of sulfurous steam appeared out of rock fissures, casting a ghostly spell. Kate strode ahead of us at a steady pace, looking neither left nor right. As we left the sapphire lake behind, we came to several small cataracts tumbling down a rugged ravine. We wound our way about one half mile more to a river where we were joined by another female guide, Marileja. She and Kate paddled us across a narrow, churning river in rickety bark canoes lined with moss, and then we were there. Even now that I am much older and have traveled over a great deal of the world, the image of that first sighting of the terraces is still clear in my mind's eye. Some have described the hot springs and sulfur pools at the foot of the terraces as something out of Dante's Inferno. But then, 
Some people see ugliness even when beauty is right in front of them. True, the boiling pools of mud and the blasts of steam and the pervasive smell of sulfur all served to give the impression that one had slipped unbidden into the underworld. Mr. Malcolm showed me how a silver coin quickly turned black from exposure to the gassy air around Devil's Hole, a dark gaping chasm with water boiling furiously at its bottom. Years after standing at the rim to Devil's Hole, I read a description by another traveler who expressed better than I could what it felt like to be there, as if a legion of imprisoned devils were roaring to be let out. But if the hot springs and steaming crevices were the devil's playground, then the pink and white terraces were a vision of heaven. There were gleaming crystal staircases rising up out of Lake Rotomahana and spread out from there like terraced fans of mineral ice. Looking down through the crystal steps, we could see the names and dates of past visitors etched and carved under the new layers of silica, as if under glass in a museum. The silica from the boiling water in the crater above crystallizes as it flows outward and gets exposed to air. One sheet layers upon the other, but you can always see through it like a prism. Mr. Malcolm had come up to my right. I've been here twice already, but I still feel absolute awe seeing it again. And then, looking at me directly, how are you going to live with such a thing? The last sentence was uttered almost as an afterthought, but I knew it was what he really wanted to say from the start. My eyes stung at the unexpected kindness, and I was unable to reply. Ah, well. Mr. Malcolm clasped his hands together in front of him, as if he didn't know what to do with them. The skin on his hands was pale and freckled, with fine red hair on the knuckles. I was seized with a strange desire to kiss the back of his hand. Just then we heard a burst of loud whooping, and we both turned to see my husband stripped down to his leggings and undershirt with Mr. Hathaway, who was similarly attired, testing the waters of a bubbling spring. Marileha and Kate were directing them, indicating which pools were good for bathing and which pools were so hot that even breathing their steam could melt your insides. That was one reason we had been told to hire guides. The Maoris had been coming to the terraces for generations, as their winter retreat, long before the first white person sat down in New Zealand. Are you going to take the waters then? asked Mr. Malcolm. I hadn't decided I would until that point. In fact, had thought I would not since my husband had told me it would be immodest. But to come all that way and not, it seemed almost a sacrilege. I went into our tent and put on a plain cotton shift that might have been appropriate for a summer day working in the garden. As I walked past my husband, I could feel his eyes upon me. He and Mr. Hathaway were up to their necks in bubbling water. Right, right, Mrs. Tucker, called Mr. Hathaway as I made my way toward Kate and Marileha. It's a feeling like none other in the world. I actually feel the years slipping away. Kate quietly cupped my elbow in her monstrous hand and led me to a private pool that was gurgling gently. I lowered myself into the hot water like I was being baptized. And indeed, I felt I was. Baptized into the world, in my place in it. I felt awe and fear and fate and love in the steamy caress of that primeval hot spring. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw my husband, already bored with his pool and wanting to be paid attention to, climbing out of the water and strutting about, looking first at one pool and then the next. He pointed at each one he passed, looking to Kate for her approval or disapproval. 
At each pool, she shook her large head, her hair a blazing cloud in the hissing steam of the springs. Finally, he came to one, and she nodded. Later, I would remember that he didn't test it first. And it was only in the silence that came immediately, in the absence of his cough, and, in fact, in any trace of Mr. Tucker himself, that the others and I realized what had happened. It was Marileha's scream that broke the spell. I have never heard such a scream since. Terror and horror and fear, all one, as she pounded furiously on Kate's massive arm. Kate stared at the pool where Mr. Tucker had disappeared. She then touched her hand to her left eye, where the Maoris believe the soul resides, and turned and walked away. The rest of us, along with some others from another group of visitors, stood frozen in that eerie tableau of bubbling mud, rolling vapor, and above all, the gleaming crystal terraces of pale rose and purest clear white. For a moment, I thought I would throw myself in the same pool as my husband. I felt my past and future disappear as one. Mr. Malcolm must have sensed something, because he held fast to my arm and turned me away. Just eight months later, back in England, we heard of the volcanic eruption of Mount Tarawara. By that time, I was accompanying Mr. Malcolm and Mr. Hathaway as an assistant in their botanical and geological studies and collections. It seemed that I had an aptitude for that type of work, which I am to this day grateful for. We were preparing to leave for the United States to travel across that country to a wilderness area called Yellowstone, which we had read had similar geysers and geological formations as those in New Zealand. In the eruption, it was said that molten lava flowed like the devil's own river, covering countless square miles with its destruction. The pink and white terraces were completely obliterated by lava and soot and volcanic debris, Although I have read accounts that even today, if you stand at the edge of what remains of Lake Rotomahana, you can see a rosy pink reflection, stair-like in appearance, spreading downward, as far as the eye can see, under the rippling surface of the water. Our second story today is No Love Lost by Zachary Ament of Menlo Park, California. Zachary was a 2015 Million Writers Award finalist for the title story in his debut collection, Stay, released by Montag Press Collective. His short stories have appeared in Underground Voices, The Master's Review, Barely South Review, St. Mary's Magazine, RCC Muse, and Phantom Drift. Please enjoy Zachary Immense, No Love Lost. Caroline waved as Troy stepped off the 574 from Tacoma. She wore a maroon t-shirt that read Gold Digger and had a zip-up sweatshirt tied around her waist. It was mid-March. Daylight savings had just begun, but the clock tower at the King Street station was still an hour behind. Suede, she said, towing his cowboy boots with her galoshes. And with rain in the forecast? Suede, he said, hugging her. It can't rain on us now, can it? It didn't, and it wouldn't. It wouldn't dare rain. Troy was relatively new to the Northwest. Strangely, the air felt fresher to him before a downpour than after one. He had never been around so little sun or such rabid sports fans. 
The traffic, also, was bad. They walked arm-in-arm to PJ's on Division, one of Seattle's oldest bars, just two blocks from Bill Speedle's underground tour. I can't believe you're here, Caroline said. I'm honored. Is the city what you imagined? Troy picked a cherry blossom out of her hair. I thought there'd be more tourists, he said. He met Caroline seven years before, since right after his engagement to Paige. They were all living in Westchester, New York at the time. He attended a wedding, without Paige as a plus one, on Caroline's family estate in Pleasantville. During the reception, and despite his ineligibility, Troy caught the garter while Caroline snatched the bouquet. She did not accidentally kiss him goodbye that night. You look terrific, he said, as a bouncer checked his ID and casually waved her in. You look fresh. Troy, I write briefs, I run 5Ks, but lately I feel like I can't write another word, or take another step. PJ's reminded him of the cocktail bars in Manhattan he had frequented in his 20s. It was Caroline's favorite place in Seattle. She took all her suitors here, and even had most of the songs memorized in the jukebox by their letters and numbers. Lush Life was D12. Rhiannon, A1. Dad took me here on my 21st, Caroline said. This table is very significant to me. I had my very first sip here. Right here. She laid her caressing palms on its surface. You should have carved your initials into it, Troy said. The ceilings were decorative tin, and the exposed brick walls soaked up most of the sunlight. On the menu were cocktails named Happy Pinecone, an apple a day, Harkonnen. So, how's the wifey? That's a good question. You don't know? Paige had traveled to upstate New York for a reunion. Her family had rented a cabin next to a Hasidic Jewish summer camp, chiefly because it had no cellular reception. I'd like to meet her one of these days, Caroline said. You'd love her, Troy said. You'd be fast friends. He caught Caroline catching glances of herself in the mirror behind him. She was finishing up law school at Seattle Pacific, poring over woefully long texts and international statutes that sounded like German submarines from World War II. As a 3L and co-editor of the Law Review, she said, I have to organize a 100 days party, which is weird because it's 87 days to graduation and 130 to the bar exam, and our professors don't call it an exam. It's a quiz. Huh. She laughed as if she were being tickled. Maybe they'll draw a smiley face near the score when they hand it back, Troy said. Every lawyer he knew did not practice law. One did stand-up comedy. Another taught yoga. I'm only laughing because I can't cry anymore, she said. It's no cakewalk. I don't even know what day it is. I'm hanging on by the skin of my skin. At least you have that to hold on to. Troy said. And this, Caroline said, hoisting her coop. Thank God for alcohol. She thought she drank heavily, but she didn't know. She had no idea. Hangovers used to be a little easier on us, remember? I was never that young, Troy said. You were famous for it. How old are you now? 33, 35? 
he nodded. I'm 30, she said, as if it was far away. Adulthood isn't turning out exactly as I had hoped. She let out a sigh, almost inaudible. Her exhale nearly scalded him. He wanted to tell her that the unpleasantness wasn't behind her, but ahead. That there was no time unless she rested it from the time she'd already wasted, loitering in school, waiting for things to happen. Let's close out, she said. I want to show you around town. She excused herself to the john, while Troy carefully inspected and paid the bill. They walked out of PJ's holding hands. The skyscrapers were shiny. Seattle felt fresh, but used. Don't tell anyone, Caroline whispered. I got you a little souvenir. She removed a small vial from her purse. It was a pepper shaker from PJ's. You shouldn't have, he joked. I steal hearts too, she said. Troy kissed her right then. He couldn't help it. It was as if their lips were grafted together. He knew she liked her hair pulled. She tasted like flavorless chapstick and spearmint, faintly. This is why I'm never without gum, she said afterwards, taking a breath. And you're like a human furnace in that jacket. Aren't you warm? What are you hiding under there? Troy only had on short sleeves underneath. He recoiled when Caroline reached in and unbuttoned his shirt. I want to see, she insisted. I don't know. I'm a little deeper chested these days, he said. So am I. Five pounds. Caroline adjusted her bra, clasped in the front. All of it went right here. Her heart lived under there, somewhere. After a breezy tour of Pike's Place, past Beecher's Cheese Shop, the Gum Wall, the very first Starbucks, she led Troy to a wine bar with an outside patio and a shuffleboard court, seemingly ideal for legitimate rendezvous, like business lunches or first dates. Damn the weather, Caroline said, surpassing blends, and four stars on Yelp. I must take page here, Troy said. They selected a carafe of the house cab. Several tables over, and within earshot, an elderly couple dined on charcuterie, with menus resting on their walkers, eating slowly, more silent than the pea in psoriasis. To us, Caroline raised her glass, garishly, to the new yuppies. They were in luck. They had caught some late sunshine. In it, Caroline's earrings glinted and swung like tiny chandeliers. They did not look expensive. A pair of unpolished spiral loops. But Troy didn't know much about jewelry. Paige's ears were unpierced. She preferred flowers. May I? Troy asked. He touched her earlobes. The hoop spun. Caroline winced. Dad got these for me when I left high school. I know they're not pretty, but I'm sentimental, obviously. How are you holding up? I think about him every day, she said. They told me he died doing what he loved. I don't think they say that to army families. I don't think you ever told me how it happened. Osprey, she said, clipped the deck of an aircraft carrier, and, yeah, pretty quick. Last week the investigators asked if I wanted to listen to his cockpit recorder. 
Did you? I couldn't. What if he was scared? She emptied her glass, down to the lees. What if his last words weren't words? I can empathize, Troy said. Should we order another carafe? Her tongue was the color of plum. Wine is essential for anyone who's lost a parent. Or two, Troy said. I forgot. Oh, I'm sorry. She bit her lip. You are a special case. It was unfair of him to say it in the first place. Caroline had so much going on in her life. Too much to hear the boring details about Perry's and Kathleen's car accident and the trip Troy made to Jack London's gravesite in Glen Ellen with their remains. They used to read The Call of the Wild to him at bedtime, and Troy wanted other people making the pilgrimage to the great man's gravesite, not a grave so much as a hunk of granite at the end of a footpath, a sorcerer's stone, to also, unknowingly, make a pilgrimage to his parents' place of rest. It was 112 degrees the day he deposited their ashes. Troy was more afraid of rattlesnakes than of getting caught. He didn't see Caroline often enough for her to know things this intimate, like the fact that Perry and Kathleen were safe people who had died with their seatbelts on after a family dinner where they joked about drunk driving. Or that their marriage was like a book so old that every page fell out as you turned it. Caroline didn't deserve that part of him that he would otherwise save her page when she was around. His wife. I was just thinking, Troy said. Yes? We've only seen each other seven times total. Caroline was skeptical. He listed them. Eighteen holes at Bethpage Black. Ping pong on the rooftop of the Standard Hotel in the West Village. Three headliners at Coachella Music Fest. The somnolent wine train along the Finger Lakes. The night at the Hotel del Coronado when she said if a couple stared into one another's eyes for four minutes, it was love, and they didn't last 40 seconds before room service arrived. Her friend's wedding. And this, Troy said, taking her hand in his until she withdrew it. You feel guilty? No. Do you think Paige has a lover? It's not in her character, he said. I imagine a married woman has to flirt twice as hard. Marrying Paige had been like buying a refurbished refrigerator. It was serviceable, no warranty. But you love her. I do love her. And it's a life sentence. And I'm happy, Troy said. And happily married people have affairs? In the strongest of passions, there is neither respite nor mercy. Caroline had a narcotic effect on him. She had made his life more elastic. At 16, her father had let her drive cross-country by herself because he wanted her to know that the world was safe for adventure. Whereas Troy had grown up afraid. He was raised on and by fear. Every drop of rain was acid rain. Every fly was the medfly. By 6.30 p.m., the outdoor tables began to fill. A waiter edged by, and Troy signed his name in the air instead of asking for the check. He paid this time with cash, with crisp bills he kept in a leather billfold with his father's name embroidered inside in gold leaf. Perry had kept everything in it. 
Receipts, newspaper cartoon clippings, bet slips on long-shot ponies from the old Hollywood park. He showed these to Caroline, explaining what a $2 win meant, what a box trifecta involved, who Sally Forth was. Could these be winning horses? she asked, smoothing out the wrinkles in the slips. Doesn't matter, he said. They're expired. When the change arrived, it blew off the table, onto Caroline's feet. She bent down and put it in her pocket. Thank you, she said. You need money? Always. I thought there had been a settlement. Caroline hung her head. The lawyers all got it, she said. I wish I had met him, you know? Didn't you meet Dad at my place when we first met? He was deployed, Troy said. Naturally, she said. He'd have liked you. Think so? She emptied her purse out on the table to prove it. In among her tampons and stain removers was a small, framed photo of a flyer in a scarf and chunky shoe-black eyeglasses that made his face look craggy. His name was Bruce. He was Irish. She'd gotten his looks. Irish babies cry with a brog, he told her later, and he made sure to fill the family scrapbooks so she had a sense of who she was and where she came from. There were, in contrast, so few pictures of Perry and Kathleen. Troy didn't know who he looked more like, who he took after. He knew that he was supposed to have a brother, and that when describing the miscarriage, his father simply told him, The stork flies over, but it does not always deliver. He knew that their lives were measured by milestones and paychecks, that they took short vacations together. Weekends in Reno, last-minute cruises out of Galveston, yearning to misbehave, but tamely. He wished they were still around, just so he could get them on the phone, just once, not to tell them he loved them, they knew that already, so much as to ask them how they made their vows work until death, because he wanted to break his and Paige's almost on a nightly basis. They headed back toward the waterfront. Caroline was in the middle of recalling a funny childhood memory when she interrupted herself. Oh no! What? My earrings, she said. They had fallen out somehow. Caroline insisted on retracing their steps. She looked in every vestibule, asked each bartender, scoured every lost and found. Troy had never seen such fruitless tenacity, but he scanned the sidewalks with her for what felt like hours, crouched in gutters, accosting strangers, until she sat down on a bench in Pioneer Square to rest. It's like losing Dad all over again, she said. Troy wanted to remind her that she had a large piece of him still. The black box. There wasn't one in his parents' Prius. I'm so sorry, he said. What can I do? I don't know. Her shoulders dropped. Ice cream sounds good right about now. They both yawned, as if it were contagious. Troy checked his watch. 8.55. The last bus is in 20 minutes. I should go. No, she said. I really should. Just come home with me. All night, Troy felt like he was playing catch with an autographed baseball. Are you sure? he said. Might as well, she shrugged.
She lived with her mother in Queen Anne. They called for a car. Here's the thing, Caroline said in the Uber. Mom's awake. She knows you're married. You'll have to climb up the back wall. Okay. Unless you want to sleep on the couch. I'm fine, he said. A wall, she said. Not a fence. The driver's route brushed up against the Space Needle. It was not a city Troy could imagine or recognize. New York made him want to eat life. Chicago, drink it. Los Angeles, film it. Seattle made him take it for granted. It's what made the Northwest an excellent choice. There was nowhere else to go. He and Paige had lived in or vetoed every other city, even those they'd never been to, sight unseen. Seattle was the greenhouse without windows they had been looking for, the snow globe without snow. She wants to settle down here, Troy said. Is that why you're here, scouting the joint? Caroline smacked her lips. Oh, Paige, how do you get there? Where, five years of marriage? He didn't know the answer himself. No, she said. How do you become so apathetic to your husband that you can't call him from a payphone? Happy spouses share top billing in a marriage. Paige was quite a woman, redoubtable in her opinions, more complex than nuclear fission. Troy could have defended her. There was a lot to defend. Her morality wasn't situational, like his. Infidelity was more taboo for Paige than blackface, and she had one of those last names, Plog, that other girls got married to get rid of. But she kept hers. She didn't buckle. Driver, I have a problem with this, Caroline said as the car pulled to a stop. The fare was higher than they had been quoted. It was because she had selected a larger vehicle, an SUV instead of a town car. Still, she talked it down. I almost forgot I'm a lawyer, she said. Troy unbuckled her belt and his. You have to pass the quiz first, he said. Her mother's townhouse was part of a newer tract with a view of Puget Sound. The streets were lined with oleanders, eucalyptus, and Eden of invasive species. The motion detectors were sensitive, and Troy could see Caroline watching him from inside her room as he went around back, past the beware of dog and trespassers will be composted, caution signs, and surveyed the six-foot center block wall, protecting her from guys like him, trying to find a foothold. It took him a minute to scramble up. She gave him a golf clap as he leapt down. <sighs> Not a fence, he said, huffing. Told you, she said. Her bedroom was decorated in chiffon and monet. They're close enough to ignite each other. Her nightgown was so lovely, he nearly tore it to shreds. She had the complexion of a Jordan almond. He found a butterfly tattooed on the small of her back. She pivoted to show him everything, her every angle. Your turn, she said. Troy removed his belt. He didn't have to unbutton his shirt to show her the popsicle red medallions covering his forearms. Welts of all sizes, small as Calibri, nebulous as a bruise. It was dry skin. It was genetic. It wasn't contagious, he said. But 
Caroline looked as if she had smashed open a piggy bank and found nothing inside. Please, Troy said. I'm incarcerated inside this body. He rubbed his forearms, childlike, as if touching them would make the eczema go away. Let's just go to bed, she said. He turned off the light so Caroline wouldn't have to look at it. He explained how he had tried to overcome it with every steroid imaginable, and how it migrated, like he had, west and then north, from his legs up to his torso. It's a shame, she said. They slept. Her snoring woke him up several times. At 6 a.m., she wiped her eyes, pulled back the covers, and leapt out. A hiking trip, she said, in Bellingham. I totally forgot. Troy dressed as she put on her makeup. He left the way he came in. The wall seemed to have grown ten feet overnight. He hoped her memory of the evening would dissolve, like an antacid tablet, or that she'd forgive him for his corrupt skin and for opening and closing his marriage whenever he wanted to. Two months later, as an apology and with congratulations, he mailed Caroline a graduation gift. His invitation to her hundred days party hadn't arrived in the mail for some reason. A copper bangle in the shape of a feather that she would never wear because the metal turned her flesh green. Special thanks, as always, to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart, and thanks to you for slowing down and listening up with us today. Don't forget to check out our website, secondhandpodcast.com, follow us on social media for updates, and please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune back in two weeks from now when we'll have more secondhand stories for you. Thanks for listening, and happy writing.